Okay, I have some questions from last night. Question number one. Should a woman who is teaching a women's Sunday school class or Bible study have her head covered? No. The head covering statement is about a woman assuming a man's role during a communion worship service. Covenant renewal service at the Lord's table. There are certain things only the pastor or a man can do, like preside at the table. But if a, apparently in the early church, and maybe we could say in other historical occasions, we don't do this, uh, you might have a woman who has a prayer to offer, or maybe uh, in the first early century has a prophetic utterance. If she was to stand up and do that, she would have to conceal her glory. Okay? So that's not, this has nothing to do with Sunday school classes. Um, it has nothing to do with women covering their heads during the whole worship service. Uh, it only means if a particular woman takes up that task, it doesn't have to do with wearing hats to church. I mean, if you're accustomed to wear hats to church, fine. But hats glorify the hair. They don't completely cover it up. So it's a really a different idea. That's how I understand it. That's having looked at all the different ways to understand the passage. That's the best I can do, and I think it works pretty well. I tried to persuade you last night. Uh, second question. In St. Patrick's Lorica, we sing, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in danger. Should we read this uh, as referring as Christ as the church, uh, as the body of Christ? No, no. Um, Paul uses the word Christ by itself to indicate Jesus plus his body. And so that Paul has a very careful way of distinguish, of using Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, and Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ in somewhat different senses. But historically in the church, very often, the person of Jesus Christ is simply called Christ. And in that particular hymn, which is based on Patrick's Lorica. The Lorica actually, if you read it in a translation, wouldn't look a whole lot like I bind myself. Uh, I like the hymn I bind myself, you know. It's cool. And it's loosely based on Patrick's breastplate. But um, what he means there, Christ before me, Christ behind me, is Jesus himself. Uh, we can't, can't take Paul's use of this language and take it straight to our hymnody. Uh, how did Satan turn into a serpent if God had just made the animals? Um, that's a complex question. Satan didn't turn into a serpent. Um, let's, let me just review what the Bible says here. Well, what the Bible says as a whole is that God created the heavens and the earth on the first day of the week. Because the book of Job says the sons of God's sang for joy when the earth's foundation were laid, was laid, we understand that when God made the heavens and the earth, God made the angelic heavens and the angels, and then an hour later, maybe, made the earth, which was without form and void and dark. Angels were made complete. Uh, the world and heaven was made complete and finished. Uh, the world is made so that it starts dark and formless and empty and it gradually develops these things, and so are you. You start out in the womb the same way. It's dark in there. 
and you're gradually knit together. As Psalm 139 says, human beings come into existence the same way the world did. We're created and fully existing in the womb from the moment of conception, but we are being knit together and doing kind of like the world, uh, becoming formed, enlightened, and let there be light happens when you come out of the womb and there's light for the first time. I mean, all of human beings are made of world, and so human life um, is related to the processes in the world. That was the first day of the week. At the end of the week, on the sixth day, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was all very good. So the angels had not yet fallen. All right? Simple logic. End of the sixth day, the angels have not yet fallen. The next day, I am thoroughly convinced that uh, Adam and Eve fell immediately on the Sabbath day. It was the day that God came to the garden to have fellowship with them. So it was the day that uh, it was what the Old Testament throughout would call the Sabbath day. In the first creation, we're not in the first creation anymore. We don't gather with God on the seventh day. But in the first creation, God was going to meet with people on the seventh day. And God comes to meet with them, and they've already fallen into sin. I can't prove this to you, but I would ask you to consider that if Adam and Eve had lived week after week after week, refusing to go to the tree of knowledge, they would have begun to build into themselves a resistance to doing that. They would have moved in the direction of sanctification. So the, the sin has to happen right at the outset. A simple question, you know, Trust God and obey Him, or are you going to doubt God and believe that God has bad intentions for you? Satan comes and essentially he says, you can't trust God because God has bad intentions for you. God is a, a Calvinistic God who loves to send people to hell. He's only going to save a tiny handful of the elect, but everybody else is going to hell. And he really prefers to send people to hell. And it's only a few tiny number of people who were elect to heaven. That's not true Calvinism. But you know, you hear that kind of thing. And you, you're very doubtful about God, you know. Well, did he baptize you? Yeah. Did he cause you, predestinate you to be born in a Christian home? Yeah. Did you grow up in the church by his predestinating ordinance? Yeah. Were you taught the scriptures? Yeah. Well, don't you think all those things show that God loves you and cares about you? Oh, I don't know. You know. Uh, I think God really wants to send me to hell. I'm just not sure I have real faith. I, I better not come to the Lord's table because I might eat and drink judgment to myself. You've got a lot of people who think this way, and they've believed the devil when the devil says God has bad intentions for you. That's what Satan said. You can't trust him. Okay, so we want to get away from that. God has good intentions. God likes to save people. We need to read the Bible and realize that God likes to save people. All these stories about Pharaoh... Uh, coming before Jacob and bowing down and asking for the blessing, or Jonah's Ninevites, or Nebuchadnezzar, or even Belshazzar at the last minute of his life saying, you know, I accept the word of God. If I'm going to die, I'll at least honor God's prophet before I go. God is telling us stories over and over again about how much he loves people and he wants to save them and he gives them time after time right down to the last minute. Even King Saul could have repented. But he didn't. That's what makes the story of Saul almost an exception because so many of the other stories of great sinners show God saving them 
uh, because God wants to save people. That's the kind of God He is. Okay, so going back then to the to Satan, God has made these angels, and from what we can tell in the rest of the Bible, there are angels and there are archangels who correspond under the old creation to the 24 chief priests around the tabernacle, uh, or rather around the temple. These archangels appear in the book of Revelation sitting on 24 thrones, and they do 24 archangelic things, and then they leave the thrones empty, and the saints now in the new creation occupy those thrones. And then there was the arch archangel, the supreme angel, we can call him by the name Lucifer, the one who gives light. And he, being the, the, the best of the angels, uh, is the one who is sent in to educate Adam and Eve so that they will grow up and become mature. But at some point on the Sabbath day, whether right in the middle of this conversation or before the conversation, Lucifer decides he doesn't want to educate human beings to become mature and wise. And we can understand why if we take the rest of the Bible. Let me give you an analogy. Some of you have heard this analogy. You can go to sleep, and I'll tell you when to wake up. All right? But if you are an officer cadet in ROTC, and you're headed to become a lieutenant, but then... As an officer cadet, you go to officer training school, and you're not an officer, you're not a lieutenant, you're just a piece of pig meat. And there's a sergeant who's in charge of you. And the sergeant makes you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and lick the floor clean with your tongue. And the sergeant makes you run 20 miles, and he makes you stand at parade rest on the field hour after hour, and you say, Sergeant... I need to pee. And he says, well, go ahead and pee then. You know? War isn't fair and you don't get to stop the battle and say, hey, Russians, I need to pee. You know, you know, the battle is just going to go on, so you just go ahead and pee in your pants and you can wash them later. You know, this mean sergeant. And he's the sergeant, you know, who's only this this tall. He says to all of you cadets out there, he says, any of you guys want to take me on? Any of you tired of the way I've been treating you? Come on. I'll give you a chance. So one of the big six-foot guys falls out and says, I'll take you on, Sergeant. So he says, well, sure, come on around here behind this building. And you hear all this biff sock pal signs. And then the six-foot guy comes out, and he's all bloody. And the Sergeant comes out, and he says, anybody else want to take me on? Of course, you find out later on that there were two eight-foot-tall Marines back behind there. And you see... Now, that's what it's like. As you come in, you're just a slob. But by the time the eight weeks are over, you're in pretty good shape. You can run three miles with a backpack on. And they have a ceremony, and they graduate you, and they put a lieutenant's bar on you. Okay? And on your way out, the sergeant's standing right there, and he salutes you as you go by. And he's bursting with pride because you've grown up and now you become a lieutenant and you're over him. Now that's the angel's job. Okay, We are the officer cadets who are supposed to grow up and rule this universe. The angels are ministering spirits sent forth to serve those who are going to become the heirs of the universe. They're the sergeants who are supposed to 
put us through boot camp, and that's what the law is. The law is boot camp. Put us through boot camp, and then be happy that we take over and they can retire. That is true. That's the story of history, the way God intended it. But you see, Lucifer decides that he doesn't want to give up the universe to a bunch of human beings. He doesn't want to educate human beings to become the captains of the universe. He wants it for himself. And so he determines to destroy the human race. He wants to make God destroy us by causing us to sin. And so Lucifer becomes the accuser. That's what Satan means. If he can get Adam and Eve to sin, then he can accuse them and say, See, look at that. You need to destroy them. They're not. They're no good. That's what he comes and says about Job. And that's what he comes and says about us. That's why we have to remind ourselves that there is no accusation against us that can stand. Who can bring any charges against us? Because Jesus has died, all those charges have been taken care of. That's what he wants. But initially, you see, the reason that God sent Lucifer in, now God predestinated, God knows everything that's going to happen. That's not the issue here. You know, predestination is not the topic of Genesis 3, okay? So we can say, yes, God predestinated this, and that's a mystery, and okay, I would just put that on the shelf where it belongs. It's God's business. It's not ours. We know about it. Okay, cool. Our business is the covenant. God sends Lucifer, the best angel. He comes speaking through the serpent, the wisest of the animals, in order to educate Adam and Eve. And then he decides to try to destroy Adam and Eve. Okay? So when did he fall? Well, my friend Jeff Myers says he fell between verses 3 and 4. Okay? He asked the woman a good wisdom-inducing question. Who was it who told you this? She says, well, Adam told me, but I trust him. It was God who said. And I think this conversation was a lot longer than what's here. Most conversations in the Bible are condensed, like the Sermon on the Mount. Read it out loud, and it takes about ten minutes. You know Jesus talked longer than that. We're getting the condensed version. We're getting what the Holy Spirit wants us to know. I suspect that this conversation went on for a half an hour or so, and then at some point the serpent makes his decision and says, you will not die, and contradicts the Word of God. So, as far as I can understand the story, the question here, the question was, please elaborate on the fall of man, fall of of Lucifer, and that's it. And now once Lucifer has uh, has been corrupted and is refusing to educate the human race, we need a replacement. And the second person of the Trinity comes as the angel of the Lord to do the things that Lucifer was supposed to do. Now, the second person of the Trinity did not become incarnate as an angel, but he comes as the messenger of the Lord, which is what the word malach or angelos means, messenger. He comes as God's messenger to give the law and to supervise the old covenant. Uh, His name is Michael, or it's Yahweh, or the angel of Yahweh. So he's replacing Lucifer's function. He's not becoming an angel. He becomes a human being by the incarnation. Is everybody kind of clear on that? Okay. Let's see. Let's look at 1 Corinthians and go back to this business of new creation and wisdom in the first part of the book. 
I'm going to start at chapter 2, and we're just going to read together until the bell rings for lunch. No, we won't do that. Paul says in chapter 2, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. That means traditional wisdom from the old creation. I did not come with rhetoric. I did not come with human wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony or the mystery of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Okay. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. We saw that the other day in Acts 18. God comes to uh, Paul and says, Don't be afraid. Don't be scared of them. For some reason, he was weak and fearful and trembling when he spoke to the Corinthians. I don't know why. We don't know why. It doesn't matter. Uh, the, the fact is, he was not strong. The only thing strong was the message. And this is just part of the whole system of things he's saying here, that the gospel comes at the weakest point in order that its full power might be displayed. The gospel means we start the world over again. The gospel means God selects those who are nothing and makes them into a new creation. And even Paul, as a spokesman of the gospel, does not come with any glory or any strength. He comes, he's weak, he's sick, he's throwing up, he can barely walk, his eyes are real bad. You know, he has to people, has to have people read out loud to him, and he's scared, and <laughs> that's the most powerful place to be. Because it's kind of like where Jesus was on the cross. And that's where everything starts over. So if you want to really make a start and reach down, reach way down to where things have to die and start over again, then Paul himself is demonstrating that by being somebody who's weak and fearful and down and needing to be pulled back up. So he says, my message in verse 4, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit, even of power. And that's kind of the paradox here, that the power of the Holy Spirit is being manifested through a timid, fearful, sick, uh, weak man. Verse 5, In order that your faith should not rest on man's wisdom, but on the power of God. Here again, power not meaning... What uh, tremendous wild things like water standing up like walls and the Red Sea, but rather power, a mysterious power that seems to come out of extreme weakness. God meets us in our weakness and in our sin. That's where God tends to meet us. No, when you're strong, that's not when God meets you. When you're cast down, when you've lost your job, when your wife is sick, when your kids are in the hospital, that's when God meets you. When you become aware of some great sin that you've been committing and turn your face away from, like David did, that's when God meets you. Verse 6, now he comes to, to kind of a, a new thought. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. There is another kind of wisdom, he says, and those who are mature 
mature believers can have this wisdom. This goes back to Old Testament word, Tom or Tamim, where God says to Abraham, walk before me and be perfect or mature, where it says Jacob was a perfect, mature man, uh, when it says Job was a perfect or mature man, or Noah was a perfect or mature man. He said, and these are all people who have kingly responsibilities and lead others. He says, there is a wisdom that is there for those who are mature. Now, what is this wisdom? I just quickly, when he keeps talking about wisdom, we're thinking, all right, what? What are you talking about? I mean, it's like he's talking about kumquats, okay? There is a kumquat for those who are mature, a kumquat, not of this age. You think, what, what, what do you mean by wisdom? What's the content of this? What are we talking about? I think, in fact, I'm certain that the content is Proverbs 3.19. I think this is what any first century Jew would immediately think of when they hear about wisdom because they all knew the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs starts discussing this in chapter 3.19. It comes up before, but he gives us a definition here. In Proverbs 3.19 it says, Yahweh founded the earth by wisdom, and by understanding he established the heavens. Wisdom is the beginning point of a new creation. And then over in chapter 8, we find Lady Wisdom talking about how she was with God in the beginning, and she helped him bring forth the world. And this is kind of a mysterious passage here uh, about wisdom being there right from the beginning, playing, dancing before God, and bringing the world into existence. Now, he's talking about this new creation. And when he talks about wisdom, he's talking about the wisdom by which a new creation is brought into being. The church is a new creation. And all the old stuff is wiped away. He's already said that. Jew and Gentile, it's all wiped away. In Philippians, he says, I count it all doo-doo. That's what he says. Okay, dung, rubbish. Uh compared to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what all this old stuff is. All right? So he says, we do have a wisdom, a wisdom that makes a new world. And it's for those who are mature. Mature Christians can help God make the world new. Baby Christians aren't ready for that yet. They're just new. (laughs) The world is made new. You're new. Infant baptism. All baptism is infant baptism. I don't care if you're 80 years old. When you baptize, you become a baby, which is good. You get a new start. You're a new creation. You come out of nothing. All right? But when you become mature, you can help the process along. And he's going to go from here to start talking about pastors and how they help build the church. This wisdom is not of this age. The ages are overlapping. And he's, uh, Ishmael is not yet, uh, Isaac is not yet being, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Ishmael is not yet being cast out of the house. And so down to A.D. 70, the old age is still there. And in a sense, it's still here now. But in a, in a strong sense, the old age is still there. A wisdom not of this age, nor the rulers of, of this age, who are being made nothing. He says, during this little apostolic age here, the rulers of this age are being reduced to nothing so that we can make a brand new start. 
Again, we look at it and we say, well, you know, the, even though the Roman Empire ceased to be the administrator of God's oikumene, it continued to exist and be pretty bad for a while. You know, the Chinese empires existed and the Toltecs and all these other empires continued to exist and have their wisdom of the old time. That's right. The 40 years of the apostolic age are a type of the entire Christian age that follows. And so what he says about the rulers of the present time being reduced to nothing, that happened in the 40 years of the apostolic age, and now it happens in a bigger worldwide way in the age in which we presently live. So it's all very applicable to us. The the small uh, Petri dish history that he's giving right now is the symbol for the whole age in which we presently live. And he says, the rulers of this age, the people who are in charge, are being brought down to zero. Again, we have to have a creation out of nothing. The sun, moon, and stars of this age, says Jesus, are going to fall to the ground. The whole world becomes dark, just like it did at the cross. The rulers of this age become nothing. That's literally what it says. Mine says they're passing away. It really means they become nothing. They're brought down to nothing so that a new age can start. So in verse 7, he says, We speak God's wisdom. That's the new creation wisdom by which a new world is made in a mystery. It's hidden. You know, people aren't seeing it. When they look at Paul, they see a guy throwing up because he's so afraid. He's got to get up and speak before men, and he's in the bathroom, you know, because he's so scared. Listen, this is how a lot of people are before they get up and speak. Not me, of course. But I had a friend who always threw up before he had to deliver a sermon. Okay, People vary, but that's what fear does. And that's, that's what they see. <laughs> and yet, hidden inside of that is the mystery of an entire new creation of the universe. This is the thing he's talking about here. Out of this weakness, hidden hidden inside these earthen vessels, trembling in fear in front of, you know, I mean, trying not to show it and trying to trust Jesus, but still being real afraid of what the magistrate might do. The whole new creation is hidden inside of that. God predestinated it before the ages. Hey, don't worry about it. God's in control. He predestinated things to be this way. And if he predestinated that we would be weak and out of our weakness the kingdom would come, well then, it's going to come. And we can be sure of it. It was predestinated before the ages to our glory. Verse 6 and 7. He says, we don't speak this new creation wisdom. He says, we do speak a kind of new creation wisdom for those who are mature. I'm going to come back to that, says Paul. But it's a wisdom, a new creation wisdom, not of this age. We don't want to restore the old age. It's not a wisdom that the rulers of this age have, the old Egyptian wisdom, the old Babylonian wisdom. That's all being reduced to nothing, so we can start over. We speak God's new creation wisdom in a mystery. It's hidden that God predestinated it before the ages in order to bring about the glorification of the world. The world was made good. It was supposed to grow and become glorious. Adam blew it. And instead of taking the good world and making it glorious, he took the good world and made it degraded. 
But now God is starting over again. And he's starting over with a new good creation in this mystery, and it's going to become glorious this time because we have a new Adam who's going to bring it to glory. In fact, has already brought it to glory in a sense, in himself. He says in verse 8, This wisdom none of the rulers of this age has understood, because if they had understood it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. Now what that means is not maybe not what you think it means. What it means is, if they had understood that the crucifixion would start a new world and they would be wiped out, <laughs> they wouldn't have crucified Jesus. They would have said, let's just keep him alive. That way, we get to keep our old world. You see, now that's what Satan said to Jesus in his temptations. He said, you don't want to bring a new world. Hey, just bow down to me and I'll give you the old world. Why don't you make some stones into bread and keep the old world going? Feed people in the old world. Hey, do a mighty miracle. Take yourself out from under the protective umbrella of God's wing and just keep the old world going. Join me and we'll just make this old world into a paradise. Everybody will have bread. We'll turn stones into bread. There'll be a chicken in every pot. There'll be a donut on every plate. You know? You and me, Jesus. Come on. Let's shape up this old world. And Jesus says, no. I came to destroy this world, to take it down to nothing, and make a new world. Well, huh. If the powers that be had understood that's what the cross would do, they would never have crucified Jesus. They looked at those three hours of darkness on the cross and they said, I wonder what's going on. Well, you see, we know. Genesis 1, verse 1, the earth was dark. And now God is starting over again. Well, verse 9 says, Just as it is written, things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard, that, not, that have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. The new world that's coming, according to the prophecy here, is something you can't even imagine. And it is kind of unimaginable. I mean, it's true that Moses was real scared we know that. And yet Moses spoke the words that needed to be said. Uh, and, but even there, you know, you almost get the impression in the Old Testament, you know, Elijah says, no rain for three years. Then he has to run and hide. So he's scared. And Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you like I killed the 200 prophets in the cave. And he runs. So there's fear. But there are all these mighty acts. But now, even more mysterious the the new age has come in a way that no one would have anticipated in its fullness. Out of the absolute death on the cross, out of the weakness of guys like Paul and you and me. The strange thing about verse 9 is he says, Just as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all the things that God has prepared. Nobody knows what that's a quote from. <laughs> uh, your margin probably will tell you Isaiah 64 verse 4, but it's not very close to Isaiah 64 verse 4. And it's one of the mysteries in 1 Corinthians. Well, you know, wisdom literature is full of paradoxes. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of man to search it out. And Paul tells us right now, we're dealing in mysteries and wisdom. So it's something of a mystery and an enigma 
what he means by according to the Scripture, and then he seems to quote something that doesn't exist in Scripture. We saw one of those last night where he says, according to the Scripture, let the woman keep silent in the church. And the only way to figure that out is that the Garden of Eden is the church, and Eve listening to what Adam had to say is what he's referring back to uh, in terms of a woman just keeping silent uh, in a sanctuary context. There are other passages that can kind of feed into that, but the, the, the main thing he seems to refer to there. We can, we've solved that mystery, but this one is a mystery, so if you come up with an answer, I'd like to know. So would all the commentators that I looked at. For continuing on, verse 10, For to us God revealed all these cool things, cool things that eye hath not seen nor ear heard. God has revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The Spirit brings these treasures out of God himself. God is the treasure. God is the treasure house. His personality is infinite and has one wonderful aspect after another. There's always something new to learn about God to be happy about. Wow, look at that. I've never seen that aspect of God before. And so there's always something new. That's that treasury. The Ultimately, the treasury that God gives us is himself. And the Spirit draws these things out and gives them to us. He continues in verse 11. Who among men knows what a man thinks except the Spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the things of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. What he means by that is, I know what I'm thinking, but unless I say it out loud, you don't know what I'm thinking. And the Spirit knows what's in God, but the Spirit brings it out. Just like... If I'm thinking to myself right now, mm, you might say, he wants a donut. Okay, but unless I say, you know, I want a donut, it's inside me, it doesn't come out. And same thing, all these riches are in God, but the Spirit knows about them, and now he's giving them out. That's what the Spirit has come on Pentecost to do, to bring all the riches that were locked up behind the veil in the Holy of Holies that's where the treasury was. All the treasures were in there. Now the veil is open and the mystery and all the treasures are coming out brought by the Holy Spirit. Well, verse 12, he says, We, we Corinthians, all of us Christians, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, who's bringing us all these treasures, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. God is giving us things free. All kinds of neat treasures. The treasure of Aaron's rod that blossomed, which is the treasure, the gift of a mature human being, okay, with white hair. That's how you know you're getting up to that everybody should bow down before you stage when you get the white hair, right? I didn't hear much affirmation there, but I tell you what, that's right, okay? The white hair, Jesus has white hair like wool when he's glorified, okay? And then the treasure of the sacraments, which is the pot of manna that was locked up in there. And then the treasure of the completed Bible going out in all languages, which was locked up in the Holy of Holies. Now all those treasures are being given out. The treasure of the Father, which is the mature man. The gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the manna and the life. The gift of God the Son, which is the Word of God. And in our worship service, we affirm those three things. We confess our sins and then we're told, stand up as a glorified host. We get the gift of the Father. And then we have the sermon, which is the gift of the Son. 
And then we have the Lord's Supper, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those three things we praise and thank for, we get those gifts every week. We hope, you know. Uh, as, as all of our churches move toward weekly communion, uh, we get these things kind of back in place uh, the way the Reformers wanted them to be. Now, he says, uh, so let's read verse 12 again. Now, we have received, not the spirit of the world. Who wants that? That's the old stuff. But the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. The spiritual gifts, there's a long list of them. All the other kinds of things we could talk about here. Verse 13, which things we also speak, we talk them out. Not in words taught by human wisdom, which is being made nothing, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. Okay, That's kind of a mysterious phrase, and I'm not going to worry about what it is. We, we take the Word of God, which was given by the Spirit. Uh, we're taught by the Spirit how to apply it. That seems to be the meaning here. But verse 14 says, A natural man, it's never a good translation, a soulish man, a man who doesn't have the spirit in the new sense. A soulish man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. Total depravity, total inability. We would plug in there if we wanted to. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. That is the Holy Spirit. You need to capitalize the S there if it's not in your Bible. Spiritually discerned, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the mysteries of the kingdom. You know, if I say the kingdom starts in weakness, the kingdom starts in impotence, the kingdom starts in nothingness, it's when the world sees us at our weakest that sometimes we are at our strongest. If I say that to you and you say, good grief, that's ridiculous, then frankly, you don't have the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. The Spirit enables us to perceive this paradox that just as Jesus on the cross completely changed the entire world, so it is that the church, often when she appears to be her weakest, is the place where the greatest changes are going to take place. So don't worry if you don't have a 3,000-member church. You don't need one. Gideon didn't have one. No. A small group of sick, vomiting, faithful people probably be more effective. <laughs> this is not an invitation to throw up now. <laughs> Verse 15 says, He who is spiritual, who has the Holy Spirit, capitalize that S. He who is spiritual understands all things, appraises all things, examines all things. Yet he himself is appraised by no man. Now he's starting to talk about what the Spirit does in making a new creation. We become those who can judge the world. We examine things. We weigh things. But nobody has the right to weigh us. I think that's pretty extreme. Well, it is extreme in a way, but it's similar to what he says in Romans 8, where he says no one can bring any charges against God's chosen ones. Okay? Christ is justified, and so neither height nor depth nor any other creature can ever bring any charges against us. And he says the same thing here. Nobody has a right to pass judgment on us. 
if they're, if they're not in the church. He's going to return to that when he says, why are you taking your... You have problems with one another and you go before the pagans? The pagans cannot judge and apprise the spirit. Only Christians can deal with one another. Okay? So the Christian person can judge things. The Christian cannot be judged by unbelievers. Not supposed to be. Cannot really be. So if you have problems with one another, don't go to the pagan courts. Find some wise man in the congregation. Doesn't have to be an elder. Just anybody that's wise. Now verse 16 brings this somewhat to a close. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? It's a quotation there from Isaiah 40. Who has known the mind of the Lord? This coming new creation is unknowable. It's so it's so vast, it's so glorious, it's so much beyond anything that we could ever uh, dream or think or I see that no one has known the mind of the Lord. And we can't even understand what this new creation is going to be. But now, he says, we are in the new creation, so now we have the mind of Christ. Now we know it. What Isaiah, what God said to Isaiah, what's coming, no one can really know except that it's going to be great. But now, it's come. We have the mind of the anointed one. We are in the body of Christ, primarily Jesus himself here. We are in that community where the Holy Spirit operates. The spirit and the mind and the heart are closely linked. So, the spirit is now informing us of these mysteries that were in the mind of God. Then in chapter 3, we're just going to continue right on here. Now he starts to jump down their throats. He says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, capital S. Okay, that means mature. I couldn't talk to you like mature men. After all, I, he says, we do speak wisdom, create new creation wisdom among those who are mature. But he says, I could not speak to you as mature men who are operating with the Spirit. I had to speak to you as men of flesh as to babies in Christ who don't have any maturity yet. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you're not able. Now he's really, he says, you know, it's okay to be a baby for a while, but what's wrong with you? You've been babies for seven or eight years. Time to get on with it, guys. You're still fleshly. And what is fleshly? Well, it doesn't mean this stuff. It touches on that but it doesn't quite mean your physical body. What it means is the old world in Adam, which has fallen into sin. Now what, in terms of the book of 1 Corinthians, what is the main part of sin that he's concerned about? We can talk about the sin of Adam as rebellion against God. We can talk about the sin of Adam as stealing a fruit off a tree and eating it into his own bloodstream so that eventually Jesus Christ, who has that same bloodstream, has to be nailed back up on a tree to replace what Adam stole. We can say that. We can talk about different dimensions of the sin of Adam. But the one Paul's concerned with is the one where when God came to Adam and said, what did you do? Adam says, it's her fault. The woman you gave, actually it's your fault. The woman you gave me, she caused me to sin. And so there's division. And then when God comes to, to Cain and says, Cain, 
You know, the sacrifice wasn't the best kind, but if you do what's right, and Cain murders Abel, and God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother Abel? And Cain says, I don't know. You know, am I my brother's guardian? Well, yes, you are. Okay, <laughs> The older brother is supposed to guard the younger brother. And uh, this is just Garden of Eden language. Adam was supposed to guard the garden and guard his wife, and he didn't. And Cain, as the older brother, is supposed to guard his younger brother, that is to watch out for him, you know, in, in, some, in some attenuated fashion, now that they're adults, and he's refused to do it. And instead, there's division. And now, God himself has, has divided the human race in half in Genesis 17. He's killed the human race. If you tear something in half, it's dead. So if I reach out there and I rip you in half, you're dead, right? I'll have to put you back together again in a mysterious way to have you come to life again. And in Genesis 17, God cut the human race in half into Jews and Gentiles. And they're both, in a sense, dead. But when Jesus is resurrected, then they're put back together again. And that's what Paul is real concerned with in the book of Romans. Here he's concerned with the fact, and beyond that, before we get even here, the Jews by this time had begun to multiply all kinds of distinctions. That the, uh, the law, to the extent that it dealt death to people, was, was creating more and more divisions. They had built the temple, and they had a separate court of the Gentiles and a separate court of women in the temple. God never commanded that. In fact, in Numbers chapter 15, it's clear that the Gentile approaches God exactly the same way the circumcised Jew has. Every uncircumcised God-fearing Gentile is entitled to come into the tabernacle and do every single thing that a circumcised Jew can do except go to Passover. Everything else, he does exactly the same. There's no separate court of Gentiles, and there's no separate court of women. Women worship exactly the same way as men do. And since women, you know, it's easier for women to help women, you have deaconesses at the tabernacle. Jephthah's daughter was a deaconess who served at the tabernacle and had a Bible camp four days of the year with the women. And we read about the other deaconesses at the tabernacle in uh, 1 Samuel 1 and 2 and other passages. There are deaconesses around Jesus. That's what these women around Jesus mean. He's the incarnate tabernacle, and the Bible's always talking about the different Marys and others who are kind of helping out his ministry. Okay? There's no separate court of women, but the divisions cutting up the human race. And now it's happening in this church again. I am a Paul. I am of Apollos. That's the flesh. That's the aspect of original sin that Paul is concerned with here, at least in this part of this book. The fact that people just love to find out ways to get better than the other person. I'm a Calvinist. I'm not just a Calvinist. I'm a five-point Calvinist. I'm not just a five-point Calvinist. I'm post-mill. And I'm not just post-mill. I'm pedo-communion. And I'm not just that. I'm federal vision. I'm a Reconstructionist. In fact, there's only two other people on the earth like me. And we're better than all the rest of you. Okay? It's not the way we ought to be. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than himself. It might be good to look at those Baptists over there and say, you know, they're better at evangelism than we are. 
And look at those Lutherans over there and say, you know, they got better music than we do. Look at those Catholics over there and say, you know, they're a lot better, it seems to be better at charity and hospitals uh, than we do, you know. We, we have a conference and we want to discuss Stonewall Jackson and Gustavus Adolphus and all the great warriors and Catholics have a conference and they talk about uh, St. Vincent de Paul and uh, Father Damien on Molokai and all the others who gave their lives for the poor. Well, you know, there's something we could learn from that. I grew up, I went to Catholic school and every year they'd show us movies about these saints who built hospitals and who died from malaria or something else as a result of going out to the poor. They, they do a better job sometimes than we do. Let each of us esteem the other better than himself. Let's learn some enthusiasm from the Pentecostals. They could learn some theology from us. You know, so maybe they would esteem us better and get some theology down. That's the way it ought to be, but that's not how it's going on here in Corinth. They're fleshly. They're dividing up. They're being like Adam and Eve, like Cain and Abel. Uh, they're not recognizing that the resurrection of Jesus pulls everything back together again, pulls Jew and Gentile and everything else. And so he says, verse 3, you're fleshly. You're living the old fallen way. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, isn't that fleshly? Aren't you walking like ordinary, unconverted men? When one of you says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? And one of you says, well, I hold to the three forms of unity, and the difference between the true and false church is easy to discern. The other one says, well, I hold to the Westminster Standards, and every church is more or less visible, and some have even become synagogues of Satan. So this easy easy to discern between true and false, that can't be true. Churches are more or less visible. It's a sliding scale. No, man. You know, sliding scale, what's wrong with you? The Spirit's either there or it's not. The distinction between the true and false church is easy to discern. Well, you know, it's not hard to kind of have both of those things going at the same time. You know, we don't have to fight about that unless we want to. If you want to get along with other people, you can say, yeah, you know, it's easy to tell the Mormons from the Christians. But within the Christian world, there's more or less visibility. So you can have your cake and eat it too. You can have the three forms of unity and their perspective on the church. You can have the Westminster Standards and their perspective. It's stupid to fight over that. But boy, people love to fight over that. You know, I could go on, but why should I? There's little time left. He says in verse 5, What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, just as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. They're servants. They're not rulers. How can you follow them? They're not people you can follow. They're servants. You don't follow servants. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants, or neither. You could fight, have a fight about that. How many of you say neither? How many of you say neither? All right, see, we can't get along. You can't come to the table. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. 
Each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. We are fellow, God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Now, this is where he starts to talk about this wisdom, which is for the mature. God's wisdom makes a new creation back when we were babies. But then God says, come on, grow up. I want you to help me bring this new creation along. I want to enlist you in my army. I want to make you planters and harvesters in my field. I want you to help me build the walls of my house. And that is the mature wisdom. It's new creation wisdom. How does this happen? Well, one way it happens is by overcoming these stupid divisions in the church. And now he starts talking about it in verse 10. According to the grace of God that was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. Paul is a master builder, he says. Why? Because the Spirit's with him. Another is building on it. He says, I put down the foundation. Apollos is building on it. Let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus himself personally, the individual Jesus who is the head of the body, that's the foundation. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, stones, wood, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. Two things I want to mention here. One is, this list, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, is supposed to remind us of Exodus 25, where we have the raw materials for the tabernacle listed. And also in Chronicles, whether we have the raw materials of the temple listed. That's what's alluded to. We have all these raw materials that Bezalel and Aholiab, that Paul and Apollos are building on. Second thing is, this is not talking about individual people. This is talking about pastors. We can make an application to your own individual life. The, the thing that this is talking about here is what the pastor of the church is given to work with. And it's not up to us what we're given to work with. Okay? He says each man's work, each pastor's work, Paul or Apollos, will become evident, verse 13, for the day will show it. It was revealed by fire. Fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If a man's work which he has built upon it remains, that's a reward to him. If a man's work is burned up, that's sad for him, so to speak, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now basically this is saying you're a pastor of a church and God just keeps sending you riffraff over and over again to deal with. Well, you know, the riffraff come into your church it takes about two years before they catch fire, go on the Internet, use their tongue to pass out all kinds of lies about you, go down the street, condemn you in the eyes of everybody in town, and then you get some more riffraff in your church, and then a couple of years later they blow up. And time after time, God is putting wood, hay, and stubble in your church, and you do the best you can with it, but it's not really up to you what gets put in there. Okay? You as a pastor will be saved if you do the things... Uh, that you're supposed to do. On the other hand, sometimes God gives people gold, silver, and precious stones. And they're able to build a church that is enduring. Usually you get some of both. So you get some gold, silver, and precious stones, some jewels in there, but they have some rough edges, and they've got a little bit of dross mixed in, so God puts some wood, hay, and stubble in there to catch fire, 
and light your church on fire, and then to refine the saints, which is always a test. So here you have a congregation of people, and you have a man in your church who's got a, a married man who's got a woman on the side across town. Okay, so you as the elders, you call him in and you say, "You can't do that," and he says. <laughs> Who are you to tell me what I can or cannot do? And you say, well, you can't do that. And so he gets mad. He gets on the phone around the church. The elders are tyrants. Well, some people in the church say, well, they've never been tyrannical to me. seems to me they're, they're good elders. Of course, there's some other people who say, yeah, I knew they were tyrants. I was just waiting for somebody to tell me they were tyrants. How do you... And so then those people start complaining around, and the elders call him in, and one of the elders has him for lunch and says, what are you so upset about? Well, you know, John Jacob Stingelheimer Schmidt says that y'all were mean to him. Well, we had to call him in and talk to him about something. Well, what did you talk to him about? Well, I can't tell you. you know, I'm not going to tell you that John Jacob Stingelheimer Schmidt is committing adultery. That's none of your business. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm just going to tell you that we had to talk to him, and it's our job as elders to talk to him. But then you find that there are certain people in the church who want to pass judgment on the elders, and they want to believe the worst. And then those people catch fire, and they talk to other people in the church. And then the real saints, you know, they listen to these lies. They have to fight off the lies. You know, a man comes home and his wife says, I was on the phone with Mrs. Fingelheimer Schmidt, and she said, blah, 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 blah. You have to say, honey, you know, we've, we've just got to trust the elders here. We, they have never done anything to us. They've never shown us anything but kindness. And we ought not to be getting involved in other people's problems. Uh, if the Fingelheimer Schmitz have got problems with the elders, then that's their business, not our business. And the wife says, yeah, 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 you're right. So she has to kind of wrestle this out of her mind and not listen to the gossip. This is the way the dross gets pulled out of the gold. You know, and eventually all these people leave the church and they send all kinds of letters around or emails around and they phone people and they set up websites to destroy your church or whatever they try to do. But the people who stay behind, they're shinier and shinier because they've been in the fire. The dross is off. The gold and silver and stones are being refined. This is how the church works. Of course, none of you have ever had any experiences like that, I'm sure. But... This is what it's talking about. So, really it's talking about pastors here and what God gives you to work with. And you can look at the letters to the seven churches and you can find that the pastor of the church at Sardis, he had an awful lot of trash in his church, you know. And the pastor of the church at Philadelphia had a lot of gold, silver, and precious stones in his church. But it's a matter of what God gives you that you work with. And then he ends up, I'm going to stop here, in verses 16 and 17, he says, and this is very much of a threat, do you not know that you guys, all y'all, this is plural, do y'all not know that all y'all are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in your midst? The Spirit dwells in the midst of this church. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him because the temple is holy and that is what you are. Now this is... What he's saying here is you guys continue to divide up and be at odds with each other and fight over Paul and Apollos and all this, you're destroying the temple. You are attacking the Holy Spirit. And if you do that, 
God will destroy you. So this is real serious stuff. He's built up to it. He's reasoned with them. But now he really drops the bomb on them. He says, if you want to die and go to hell, keep this up. Uh, Mr. Hayes, uh, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, Richard Hayes, says it very nicely. The stakes are high. God has chosen to be present in the world through a specific community of human beings. That's where God is present in the church. The task of apostles and church leaders is to construct that community on the foundation of Jesus Christ in such a way that the Holy Spirit will be rightly worshipped and manifested, as Paul has already stated. The Spirit is to be manifested in the church's unity and community. This is no light matter. Those who damage the unity and community are interfering with God's chosen mode of presence. And this will certainly incur judgment. Strong, serious words here Paul gets to. So we will pick this back up and uh, tonight and then look at how this plays out in the rest of the epistle. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that we live in the new creation when you no longer keep the world divided yourself into Jew and Gentile. And we ask that you would help us always to esteem others better than ourselves, to look for the good points in other people, not to be caught up in divisions, not to be caught up in rebellion against those you have put in charge of your church. We ask now that you would bless us today in all the things that we have before us. Give us a good day. Keep us all from harm and from sickness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.